Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I just started running for the bank. My uncle's right behind me, so, you know, we're just both, <laughs> and then you know, all you could hear is like, and it's just coming through the brush, you know, the shh, just coming right through the brush. We're running as fast as we could. One man goes looking for an outhouse and finds a world of trouble instead. And another man desperately apologizes to a mother in the hopes that she won't maul him to death. Hey, look, I, I am really sorry. Like, I am an idiot, and I just scared your baby, and I am so sorry. I did not mean to do that. Bear Cub, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the most feared creature in the Alaskan wilderness is not a huge grizzly bear or a pack of wolves, like you might think. It's actually one of the most adorable critters we've got up here, the bear cub. Why is that? Well, an adult bear generally wants nothing to do with you. As long as you don't surprise it, it would rather the both of you just go your own ways. And wolf encounters are all but unheard of, but give a mama bear just an inkling, an inkling that you're after her cub and she will unleash the full force of a mother's fury with a supernatural rage. She is a shoot first, ask questions later kind of mom, which is good for the cub, but bad for the poor sap minding his own business who happens to bump into her offspring out in the wilderness. In today's episode, we have two stories from our February 2020 live event of men who didn't want any trouble, but trouble found them nonetheless. First off is Travis Cole, who had this encounter out in the Alaskan bush as a boy back in the 1980s. I grew up in Alakakit. And in the summertime, we always went to fish camp. And if you have ever been to fish camp, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. But what you do is you load up your boat with all those canned goods and bacon and eggs. And you go off to camp, and you're there like for over a month. So all that canned food, everything is all gone within a few weeks, and that's when the salmon is coming in. So, you know, we set our nets, and when I was a kid, we used to, like, just fill the whole smokehouse, you know, and they would have to tie it all up and then put it back in the boat and send somebody up to the village so that they could throw the net back in because we'd have to pull the net out when we filled the smokehouse. You know, nowadays, we're just lucky if we get a few dozen salmon, but then it used to fill up a whole smokehouse. So, you know, we wind up, when you run out of everything else, it's just like, you know, Forrest Gump, you're eating, you know, fried salmon, broiled salmon, <laughs> salmon kebab, salmon chowder, salmon, you know, it's just smoked salmon. And I love salmon, but you eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, you, you get kind of tired of it. But <clears throat> I was in our fish camp, because I'm from Alakakit, which is, if you look at the map, and there's an Arctic Circle. And right there where the Koikuk River meets the Arctic Circle, you'll see Alakakit. 
And I actually grew up 50 feet from the Arctic Circle because years later, these people came in and surveyed the place and they put this post up and it says Arctic Circle on it. And it's just 50 feet from my, my, um, my cabin I grew up in. So now I can tell my kids because I had to cross it every day to go to school when they complain. I had to cross the Arctic Circle every day to go to school, you know. But during the summer, you know, we go down river to where my, my family's fish camp is. And it's about 25, 30 miles, somewhere around there, below Alakakit, on the north side of the shore. And it's a beautiful place. There's a huge bluff. And right underneath that bluff is where we set our net. And it's a perfect place to catch salmon. And then we, you know, course cutting fish swimming doing all those things but you know fall time comes around it starts getting colder and colder and colder the salmon is no longer going we're just there basically drying the salmon and enjoying ourselves and then the last days what we'll start doing is breaking down the tents and you know cleaning out the camp and and somebody will take a boat again because we had uh, that summer this is the story I'm telling this is an way back in 1985, when I was my son's age, 10 years old. And we had uh, two boats, and my mom and my brother and them, they all went on the first boat, which had a boat full of salmon and some of the gear and everything like that, because you just weighed it down with all of your summer's work. So they took off the day before us. The last day was me. My little cousin, John Francis, I'm 10 years old. He's about six. And my aunt, Christine, and my uncle, Gilbert. You know, I love hanging out with them, so I was just like, I'll stay. You know, and, and we took down camp. John Francis is downstairs, down the bank, holding the boat. Well, we're packing stuff down, and then they send me back up. I can't remember how you pronounce the word, but the word is we, um, you go take one more look. So before we jump in the boat and just take off, we got to go take a look around, make sure we didn't leave tools, we didn't leave anybody, you know, behind. Make sure everything's in the boat, nothing left. And then we jumped in, we started taking off, and our boat's pretty loaded down with everything left from fish camp. We're going back north, up the river, and we're just cruising along, and suddenly a moose came running out onto the, the shoreline. Is running along the bank, the gravel bank. We're just going along, and my uncle gets excited, you know, and he just tells my aunt, grab the motor, and it's an outboard motor, you know. You have to sit there, meh. So he just, like, let goes, and she reaches over, grabs onto it, and holds on, and he jumps up with his 30-30, and there's just no space, really. To, to, he's just kind of standing there, and, but he, he's a good shot. And he hit it twice, you know, boom, boom, and that moose, crippled, ran back up the bank real fast. You know, moose are very fast, so it didn't take much for it just to hop right up the bank. And so we stopped. My uncle, you know, said, wait here. He ran up, and then you could just hear, one more gunshot, you know. Apparently, that moose just went about another 10 feet up over that bank and laid down. And then my uncle, you know, gave it one more shot. And... For us, traditionally, we also, we have to respect our animals. So, you know, we did our, our little, we, we did a little quiet prayer. We give them 
a little more water, you know, and a thank you. So when we, we take our animals, we don't just, you know, we're not there with our cameras taking selfies and stuff like that. You know, it's not about us. We don't, we don't uh, try to brag or, or, or show off what we get. So, you know, what, what happens is that, you know, we get the, the moose. My uncle says, come on up. And so we're looking at it, and, and then he realizes, well, we didn't expect this, you know. Because, you know, don't tell anybody it wasn't that type of season right now to be hunting moose. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, we ate all the evidence that's long gone, so. But um, he realizes he doesn't even have a hunting knife to skin with. You know, we just got this moose, and he has this fish cutting knife and a little kitchen knife. And we're sitting there, and he's like, and it's dull. So he looks across the stream, and right above us, I'm, we must have traveled... I don't know, four miles maybe, because right on the other side of the river is the Limburg and Lydia's camp from Alakakit. And so, you know, he just told my aunt, he's like, well, I'm going to go over there. There's nobody there, but, you know, I'm going to go in their cabin and look for a file or sharpening stone, or maybe they have a knife there. So my aunt was like, okay. But, you know, of course, this is Alaska, so you get a fresh kill. There could be bears and other animals in the air. So my uncle left the rifle with my aunt. And me and my cousin John Francis jumped in the boat with my uncle. So my aunt was alone, just guarding the moose with the rifle. Well, we went across the river to go check out the other fish camp to see if they have anything to sharpen with. We get up there. Is this right across the stream? Koikuk's pretty wide, but not as big as the Yukon. But my cousin John Francis, six years old, grabs onto the boat. He's just holding the boat while my uncle's like, okay, hold the boat, we'll be right back. You know, and <laughs> we go up the bank, and right there's the cabin. It's just a few feet from the bank. So, you know, my uncle gets up there and he starts, and all they did was they, they tied the door so you know when bears and things like that try to get in there so he didn't have a padlock he just had to untie it and um, for that moment right then and there you know right when we we're getting up that bank all of a sudden I realized I had to poop <laughs> oh, 10 years old like oh and and my uncle looks at me and I said uncle I got a chop which means to poop I need to poop and he just looked at me, kind of frustrated. He's like, I don't know, look for outhouse. And he goes into the cabin. And I stop, I turn around, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, okay, where is it? But the, you know, Lindbergh had a, and Lydia had a large dog team. In fact, when I was a kid, there was more dogs in Alakakit than people. So when you're in their fish camp, they have all these dog houses and the poles, you know, where they tie their dogs at. So... They usually, every summer, bring their dogs all down there. In fact, they're, you know, about four or five miles up river from us. We could hear them. But, you know, I stop, I turn around, I'm looking for the outhouse. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see something moving. So I look over, and there's a dog house and a pole, you know, the little pole you, you tie your dog up to. Well, there's something rolling around it. And I was just looking over, and I was just thinking, who leaves their dog in camp, you know? I was thinking, you know, that's dog abuse or something, you know. I was just curious, looking at it like, hmm. And then it stopped rolling, and then it just stood up 
and it put its little paws up, and here it's a little bear cub. You know, and it, it literally stood up and put its paws up. And, you know, for, you see movies, you hear stories, and people say, they say mom. You know, they do say mom, <laughs> I tell you that. I still vividly remember that. It went, ma. <laughs> and I'm standing there looking at it like, And I, 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 you know, my uncle's in the cabin, my, my cousin's down the bank, and I'm just standing there going, bah, 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 bah. But my uncle must have heard it because he came running out of the cabin, and he just slapped me in the back really hard and just like shoved me towards the bank. And right when he hit me in the back, I just went, back up! <laughs> I finally came out, I guess. And then, you know, I just started running, and I didn't look back, I didn't do anything. I just remember what my mom told me. He said, you see a bear cub, you just run. And so I just started running for the bank. My uncle's right behind me, so, you know, we're just both, <laughs> and then you know, all you could hear is like, <sighs> and it's just coming through the brush, you know, the <sharp inhale> just coming right through the brush. We're running as fast as we could. We're going down the bank. My little cousin, John Francis, is, comes running up the bank. Where? Where? <laughs> <laughs> Like, he wants to see this thing, you know. Oh, bear cub, you know. But I went cruising past my cousin, John Francis. My uncle, like, had to jump past him, grabbed him by the back of his collar, and just threw him into the boat. <laughs> I ran up to the boat. I'm pushing onto the boat to get it out. My cousin, John Francis, just comes flying past me. Boom, right into the boat, you know. My uncle goes jumping into the boat. I'm pushing the boat. I'm about up to my chest in water by the time I finally jump into the boat myself. I roll over into the boat. My uncle's just cranking away on that thing, you know, and he's, and then he starts to take off. I turn around, and that mother bear is like from here to that tiger. And it's standing on the shoreline, just right at the edge of the water, just, and it, it just sounds just like that. Those two sounds, ma. I'll never forget those songs, you know, till the day I die. You know, so we just take off across the river. Looking back, the little bear cub is just kind of coming down the bank. Goes stand next to its mother and is just looking at us, you know. But that was really scary because we get across and we still have a moose over there. And a moose isn't something you just throw on the boat and say, let's go. You know, you got to cut that thing up. So what happened is that we got up the bank. My aunt's like, what happened, you know? And we're just like, hey, we got to get this, you know? And my, my, my uncle was just like, I got a knife. I, we're going to cut this. And, and he's like, just sit by the bank and watch for bear. So my aunt sat down. She's looking right at the fish camp. I'm sitting there. I'm watching anything that comes on this side of the river. My cousin's sitting there, and he's watching that part of the river. So we had that you know, full 180 of the river right there, make sure nothing came across. But to this day, I just finally realized, you know, it wasn't until like a few years ago I told somebody about this. It's like, you know what? I don't ever remember going poop. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know I didn't poop my pants, which I'm surprised I didn't do. But did I hold it was I so scared that I held it until I got all the way back to Alakaki? I might have. I think I might have. I just suppressed that. Just like, nope, this is not happening. (laughs) 
But for us Athabascans, we survived this land for thousands of years. And what we did, we didn't have any of this fancy stuff and cameras to make movies, to show, and lights and everything. So we did this. We told stories. You know, this is what kept us sane for thousands of years, sharing stories with one another, traditional stories of the Kondodjithni, which you can see I have like tattoos of animals and people. You know, there's those type of stories, but we have stories like this too. But what we would do traditionally is when we sat down in our areas to tell stories to our families, is that we'd always say at the end of our story, is I thought the winter had just begun, and then I went and chewed off part of it. So that's a traditional thing that we always end our stories with, you know. And to my takeaway from any of this, you know, is I think it was a few years later that my grandpa told me this, but it always stuck in my head and it always reminded me of being chased by a bear, was my late grandpa Joe from Hughes, when I was cold one time, I was like, Grandpa, I want to go back to the village. I'm cold, you know, and we're way up on the mountain. And he just looked at me and he said, well, keep moving or you die. <laughs> Thank you. Anabasi. Travis Cole. He shared that story at our February 2020 Dark Winter Nights live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. one of our live events, we ask our audience members to throw their names in a hat if they would like to tell a story on stage that night, which takes quite a bit of courage since that means sharing their story impromptu in front of an audience of about 800 people or more. But they've never let us down, and our next story is a prime example of that. We pulled our next storyteller's name out of the hat at our last live event in February 2020 here in Fairbanks, and he knocked his story out of the park. Here's Hayden Neville. I had a friend who took me dip netting to Chitna many years ago, and it was great. We had a four-wheeler. We went up that path, and uh, it was a great fishing hole, and I loved it. And I said to my wife, let's go do that next year together, and let's do it our style, because we're too cheap to buy a four-wheeler, but I have a mountain bike, and you like to road bike, and so if I buy you a mountain bike, how hard could that be? And uh, we had a trailer we got from the transfer station, you know, one that you usually put kids in, but instead we put things like a tent and some sleeping bags and things like that. And uh, we got her a cargo bike. It was kind of like a hybrid thing. And she rode it around town and it was great. And we go down to Chitna and we get our bikes out and oodles and oodles and oodles of things that one needs when fishing at Chitna. And we had the um, dip nets, you know, coming off the bike, and I was like, this is so cool. I saw people doing this last year. They looked like so cool. We're gonna look so cool doing this. <laughs> and so we've got the dip net sticking out like we're jousting, and we're dragging all this stuff, and we decided to leave the ice in the truck, which was smart, because it's heavy. And we had like this 
grand delusion we were going to catch our limit in like three hours or something. And so we're, um, we start off that path on Chitna. And those of you who have been there, it's like 400 miles uphill. And uh, okay, that's, that's cool. Like we're tough. We're doing this. We're doing this. Uh, we go about like, I don't know, 50 feet. And Rebecca's like, uh, this is not road biking. This is not fun. And so... She's a good sport, we carry on. And then there's some downhills, that's great. But then what happens with the downhills is if you haven't done that path on a bicycle, you think it's like a little rocky path, but it's like a rocky path. It's like stones and boulders and things. And so we're going along and there's times when we're like wrenching the bikes and the trailers over these boulders and I'm telling her, we're almost there. It's a great fishing hole. You're going to love it. And oh, and all this place is uh, restricted anyway. We can't fish at this spot. We have to keep going. And so we get up there. We pitch our tent. We put on our extra tufts, walk down the rocks, life vest, clip on, hang from the trees, all that stuff. And we were catching great fish. And it was fantastic. And it was a beautiful summer day. It was like July sometime. And so uh, it was kind of late July, so that means it, gets, it does get dark for a little bit. And we're sitting there fishing, having a great time. And our goal was to take the fish back to the truck and put them on ice, right? We don't want to leave them in the river like all night until tomorrow because the river's moving and the rope you have through the jawbone is like sawing through the jawbone so you don't want to lose your fish. And, and I look at my watch and I said, well, I guess I should head back to the truck. Oh, it's 10 p.m. I better head back to the truck right now because I need to get all the way there, dump the fish off, and then get all the way back here before dark. And of course, I smell approximately like a 200-pound salmon because <laughs> I am covered in all kinds of salmon guts and scales and everything else because we've, we've, um, we've gutted the fish. So I scramble back up the rocks with my five-gallon pail on my back and I get the bucket into the back of the bike, and I'm careening through the woods with the salmon. And it's going great. Everything's fine. I was afraid I was going to die, but I didn't. Um, I didn't even fall off my bicycle. And so I get to the truck, rinse the fish off in the river, throw them on ice, and it's really starting to get dark. And what I have with me are the clothes I'm wearing, a watch, a bicycle, and a bicycle trailer. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be fine. The path, I know where the path is. I'm going to be able to tell where the path is. It's going to get dark, but it's going to be okay. And so I go back on that 400-mile uphill. And I'm like, I couldn't ride it because I was exhausted. So I was running my bike up the hill. And people are like, look at that crazy guy with the empty bicycle running uphill in the middle of the night. And so I, I get up there, and then I'm careening through the woods. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it back when there's still enough twilight that I can see what I'm doing. And I'm coming around a corner, and I'm just flying downhill. And all of a sudden, a bear cub runs in front of me. And I'm on this, if you've been on that path, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's, this goes down to the river path, and then there's, like, up above you here. And there just happened to be a little cut there because there was a, a little stream that ran across the path. So this bear cub runs in front of me and then runs up ahead so that if I continue down the path, I'm going to be, like, just under this bear cub, which I recognize is maybe not a smart place to be especially when all I have with me are the clothes I'm wearing, a watch, a bicycle, and a bike trailer. And so I stop, and I'm like, all right, get your wits about you. Oh, what I didn't tell you is that I'm a veterinarian. And I'm also a veterinarian who like, has my biggest interest is in wildlife. And so in my head, I'm like, I could just see the headline in the Daily News Miner the next morning, like, wildlife veterinarian covered in fish guts is eaten by a bear at Chitna. And, <laughs> 
Like, it's my, my singular goal in life is to not die in a way that'll make a good headline. And so, so I stop, and of course, you know who comes next, right? It's Mama Bear, right in front of me. And she huffs at me, and I've got a bicycle. I've got a bicycle trailer. And I'm like, ah, oh, hey, look, I, I am really sorry. Like, I am an idiot, and I just scared your baby, and I am so sorry. I did not mean to do that. Because I'm thinking that, like, maybe bears don't eat stupid people. I don't know. And, and she's standing there in front of me, and later on, people are like, well, you sure it was a grizzly? And I'm like, I know the difference between a grizzly bear and a black bear, and I have no idea. I mean, I assume it was, but at, at that moment, my brain was not thinking, oh, what are the shape of the ears? Oh, how big is this bear? Because, like, as far as I could, it was like maybe 10 feet tall, or maybe three feet tall, or maybe 50 feet tall, but it was a bear, and it was right there, and it was like maybe 20 feet from me. And so I'm thinking, okay, I need to get myself like back into the trees. I need to like just back into the trees because she's not gonna come after me like that. And so I'm backing up my bicycle and the trailer goes <laughs> So I'm like, still, I am so sorry. I am so sorry about your baby. Your baby went that away. And so I'm backing up and I'm back and finally I get my trailer backed up and I back up into this stand of willows that are like that big around. But at least I got my back against something. And my bicycle's with me and then I'm thinking, okay, so if she attacks me, how fast can I be like, with my bicycle and defend myself from her? And then again, I'm like, oh, Daily News Miner. All the veterinarian had was a bicycle and a, and a, and a watch. You know, and uh, so, so then I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna stay calm, keep talking, still talking. And then I was thinking, should I tell her, like, read her a poem? Like, um, and then, she runs across the path. But instead of going that way where the baby went, she comes this way, so she's now approximately 10 feet above me, but like three feet that way. And just like Travis was saying, it was that, you know, so I'm still really sorry, and your baby went that away, and I'm not gonna go anywhere unless you go that away first. And she's huffing and she would do that bluff charging, you know, which was bluff charging, like she was bluffing, but also she was like on a little bluff above me. It was like <laughs> bluff, bluff charging. And so she's doing this and then she'd back off. And I'd try to count to 10, but maybe I counted to three and then she'd do it again. And then, and so finally she leaves. But I don't hear where she goes. I just know that she's not doing this again. And so I'm like, oh. What do I have with me? I have my clothes, my bike, my bike trailer, and my watch. I am going to wait five minutes, and then I will assume that I am fine, and then I will go down the trail. And so here I am, standing there covered in fish guts, scared out of my wits, and um, just me and my bike, hanging out against the little stand of willows, and <clears throat> it's almost five minutes, she hasn't come by yet, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna just like very slowly with my bike between me and that bluff, just like walk down this trail, but I hear a four-wheeler coming. If you're in this audience, tell me later, I'll let you laugh at me in person again, but this four-wheeler's coming down, and I flagged this man down, and I said, he cuts down the engine of the four-wheeler, I said, hey, I just got between a mama bear and her cub, and the cub went that way and she went that way, he didn't say a thing to me. He just looked me up and down. And I could almost hear the like, you stupid hippie, like coming out of his head. And he, he had this little girl on the, on the four-wheeler. She was maybe three. And he picks her up, puts her on the ground. 
and he reaches into his coat, and he pulls out the biggest handgun I've ever seen, <laughs> and he goes, boom, boom, boom. And he puts the coat, the back of his coat, picks up the little girl, and takes off down the trail. <laughs> so, that is how I avoided getting my name in the newspaper. It was by some magical person on a four-wheeler with a giant gun. And so what I've learned is even if you're a hippie and you want to do things yourself, maybe you should carry a gun with you. <laughs> Hayden Neville. He was picked from the audience at our February 2020 live event to tell that story off the cuff and did a fantastic job. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Today's episode was edited by myself, Rob Prince. Story consultation by Lori Newfeld. Storyteller recording by John Huff of Alaska Universal Productions. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. <laughs>